0: Good morning, all. Are you recovered from your Thanksgiving feasting, I hope? <clears throat> Happy Thanksgiving. We are covering 40% of the Pentateuch in the next 50 minutes. So we're going to get started. Enough of the greetings. Let's let's uh, pray for a moment. Our Father, how good it is to be in your house today. How good it is to be with your people, to think on the things that are blessed and holy, to look into your word and to think about how gracious and kind you are to have communicated yourself to us in a way that we can understand. Lord, this morning as we look at Leviticus and Numbers, I pray, God, that you would bless our hearts with the the incredible nature of the Pentateuch and how you have um, set us up to understand the rest of the Bible through these books. Lord, I pray for quick minds and for receptive hearts that we might understand and know your word I think about Deuteronomy, where you said to Moses, it is not an idle word for you, it is your life. And I pray that your word would be our life this day. Thank you for the Lord's day. We remember Christ. We remember his resurrection on this day so long ago. And we look forward to seeing him face to face in newness of life as we enjoy the fruits of salvation for all time. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, fasten up. We're going to go through Leviticus and Numbers today, and so again, these slides will be online if they're not already, and that'll give you an opportunity to get caught up, because um, I, I want to make sure we cover these together today. So let's look at uh, Leviticus to get started. Uh, the Hebrew title is, And He Called the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, it's called Levitical, meaning a book pertaining to the Levites. When I was in seminary, Dr. Keith Essex said that um, uh, it should be called Israeliticus, because it's really about the Israelites. Uh, some call it the sons of Israel, even. It really is, in, in many ways, uh, mistitled. Uh, we don't say that the titles of the Bible books are inspired, necessarily. They're, they're titles that uh, people came up with. But we don't find out about the Levites until the book of Numbers, chapter 3 and 4, so um, it's kind of an odd title, but it is what it is. The author is Moses, once again, and the date of the events. This is a, a very compact book. Leviticus takes place basically in a month, and it's, it's very compact in time. There's only two stories in the book, two narratives. Both end in death. Both end in death for violating the holiness of God. You have Leviticus 8 and 9. And then Aaron and his sons are consecrated to the Lord, but first they had to offer sacrifices to make atonement. Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, deciding to worship God their own way. They offered strange or unauthorized fire and they were killed by the Lord. So Leviticus is mostly prescription. It's very little narrative, very little story to it. Now, by now, and if you've listened to our introductory uh, message in Leviticus, and that would be helpful to you uh, to go along with this. But by now, if you remember, the second generation has grown up in the presence of God. They have been with God their whole lives. They've seen the consequences for not taking the holiness of God seriously. They've seen the consequences to their own fathers and mothers for their lack of faith. And so the, the original readers... It's important to remember them because there was a sobriety. They had a seriousness in the hearing of God's word because they had seen what happens when you don't hear God's word. The themes in Leviticus are are epic, to say the least. You have the presence of the Lord as the first theme, you have the offerings given before the Lord. The offerings are given, and and there's almost every chapter you can find those, but it goes primarily chapters 1 through 17. That's where the offerings are seen, so really in the first half. Now, Leviticus is addressed to the sons of Israel. That's who God is writing to, meaning the nations, or the nation as a whole. When individuals don't take to heart God's, uh, God's requirements, there would be corporate consequences. In other words, when enough individuals in Israel ignored the law of God, the whole nation would suffer. Why is that? Well, the deliverance of Israel was physical. It was corporate. God brought them all out of Egypt. Now, on this side of the cross, we tend to think a lot more individualistically. We, we think about me, God calling me, God saving me, God indwelling me. But even now, if you don't take personal responsibility for your own holiness... There are consequences that happen in your family and there are consequences that happen in the church. And so that same principle still applies. Uh, The lessons found in Leviticus are not just about me. It's about those around me as well. Also, in accordance with the presence of the Lord, you have the daily activities from God saying, I am the Lord your God. Now, this is interesting because the offerings uh, before the Lord happened primarily in chapters 1 through 17. And now this section, the daily activities from I am the Lord your God, happen beginning in verse 18, in chapter 18, rather, going forward. And when we get to the literary structure, that's going to make a lot of sense because the literary structure, of Leviticus, will be very familiar to you. I won't tell you what it is yet, but it'll be familiar. So you have the presence of the Lord. That is a, a great, tremendous theme. And this is arguably the theme of Leviticus, and that is holiness. We'll spend a moment on this. First of all, you have just generally speaking those things that are holy. And we could categorize the things that are holy into four categories. You have Yahweh Himself. He is said to be holy. Now, the the root word for holiness in Hebrew is used about 150 times in Leviticus. It's overwhelmingly the theme it means to be set apart it means to be different it means to be other and so when we speak of the holiness of Yahweh we're not speaking so much of an attribute there's theological arguments that say the holiness of God is an attribute I don't believe the holiness of God is an attribute of God the holiness of God is all of his attributes put together equals holiness that he's different that he's set apart so this speaks of the differentness of God that God is different He's distinct from his creation and things that are consecrated then by God are made different and made distinct. Now, how is it that God is holy? Well, there's a couple of ways we could say he's holy. First of all, he's holy morally. He's different in his perfection in that he never sins. He is pure and and we might call that his purity holiness But we'd also say that he is holy simply because he is so far above, so far separated, so far different. Some call that his majesty holiness. So you could have his purity holiness and his majesty holiness as well. Four times because of Yahweh's holiness, Israel is called to be holy as God is holy. And we see that reflected in the New Testament as well, don't we? There to be different, there to be unique. And so we start off with the fact that Yahweh is holy. <clears throat> and then we see that Israel is holy. There's a separateness from the nations. And, and how do we know this? Well, there's distinctions. There's differences all over the place. They're different in what they eat. They're different in their moral conduct. They're called out to be distinct, to be different from other nations. They're to reflect Yahweh. Exodus 19 says this. They're to reflect the holiness of God to the other nations. What they ate, what they did how they behaved, how they run their society was completely distinct and it was to be a witness to the other nations. And we've said this before. I'll say this till I'm blue in the face. The attitude of the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day that we are different and Gentiles are dogs was never God's intention. The attitude of the Jew was to be, Exodus 19, kingdom, a kingdom of priests to demonstrate God to the world to make God big to the world. It wasn't to shun Gentiles, it was to attract Gentiles. And so the method of, if we want to call it evangelism, in the Old Testament was to be attracting Gentiles to God's nation. That's what they were to do. And that's why there's so many laws about how you take in a sojourner. How do you take in a stranger? Because that's what God expected them to do. And we have some examples in the Old Testament of that. And so Yahweh is holy. Israel is to be holy. I just read a quote yesterday. I'm trying to remember who said it. It will come to me in a moment. But the, the church is never more effective than when it tries to be different from the world. And the church is never more ineffective when it tries to be like the world. In other words, if we as the church are distinct, if we're different, we'll actually attract the world. If we try to attract the world, we'll discuss them. Because we'll never come up to their standards of, of, of sin and degradation. We'll never get there. So uh, there's a great irony there. So Israel was to be separate. And as they marched through the plains of Moab. And as they exist in their land. Other nations were to look at them and to say I want something of that. Do we see any of that? I know I'm on a digression but this is important. Do we see any examples of that in Israel's history? We do. The kingdom of Solomon was a tremendous example. Nations from all over the world flowing into Israel very much in a shadowy picture of what will happen in the millennial kingdom and in the new state, in the final state. So they were to be distinct. They were to be different. So not only do you have the, the, the holiness of Yahweh, you have the holiness of Israel. You have the holiness of things. Things that are set apart. You have the tabernacle as a sanctuary. It's called a set apart place. Every curtain, every pole, every piece of furniture, everything was holy. It was set apart. And even the central tent was, was more holy. It's called the what? The holy of holies. That which is set apart among the set apart. And so the holy things, they were made by human hands, but they were consecrated to be holy. Do we have holy things in our lives? I think we do to a certain degree. Your wedding ring, you probably consider that at a level of being different and holy than all of your other things. Your Bible is holy, not just because it says Holy Bible, but because out of all the books on your shelf, it's the only one that contains the Word of God. So we do have holy things. We make them holy. What do we traditionally call this room? We call it a sanctuary. And that's a good name for it. We have made it holy because we've dedicated it to a specific purpose. And then the last category of holiness, holy times. We have Yahweh is holy, Israel is holy, things that are holy, and holy times. Chapter 23 is our main chapter on the holy times of the Lord. And that is, once again, something that we have often lost in the Christian church that we don't set aside times that are holy anymore. Now we're in competition with the world for holy times. And yet the Jews, what a wonderful way to live. They lived their whole year around holy times. And those times were not just an hour or two here and there. Sometimes it was a week here and there. Long times of holiness. Now, still under the category of the holy, you have the opposite of that, the common or the profane things. Um, and when we say profane, when it comes to the book of Leviticus, it doesn't mean wicked. It means just something that is not holy, Something that is just a regular thing. The common, the profane, is in contrast to the holy. It's a contrast to the holy. It's something that's common that is not set apart for holy use. And if you looked carefully at this, when something has been set apart for holy use, there's no going back. You you don't undo that. When, uh, when churches... Uh, <clears throat> sell their buildings. Uh, I know one pastor that determined no amount of money would allow them to sell their building to any entity except another church. And his reasoning was, because once it's been made holy, there's no going back. That's a little bit of a stretch in the church age, but I love his thinking. That once it's holy, there's no going back. So in other words, a curtain in the tabernacle... If it got a little bit worn or been dragged through the dust a little bit, no family would go and say, hey, I'll take that for five bucks in the sanctuary uh, garage sale and I'll put it in my house. No, once it's holy, it's always holy. Then you have uh, the concept still under holiness of the clean. This is very complex. When something is unclean, you need to wash it. That's what the clean means. And chapters 11 through 15 uses the idea of the clean to be very symbolic of spiritual cleanness. And in fact, then that brings us to the unclean. Same chapter, same four chapters or five chapters. So what's the relationship then between the holy and the clean? What is that relationship? The unclean thing or person must be made clean before going to the tabernacle. That's step one. This is a two-step process. Someone or something unclean must be made clean, then they can be sanctified, made holy. So what does this mean? Well, it means you go through whatever the, the ritual cleanliness prescribed in Leviticus 11 through 15 is, then you can go offer sacrifice. And I, we've talked about this before. I, I just This is such a tremendous concept for us. Obviously, we're made righteous in Christ, and we understand that. We understand imputed righteousness. But let's talk about Sunday morning worship, just as an example. Some Christians would say, I need to go to church in order to be made clean once again before God that 's not the and i 'm not talking about to be uh, to be saved once again i 'm talking about just being right before God and having your heart made right and so forth in your relationship that 's not the New Testament pattern. The New Testament pattern is before you go to church, take the lord's table. what do you do? You confess sin it 's exactly the same. I will be made clean before I go to to take part in that which is holy so in other words. Worship is not something you do to cleanse your heart. You cleanse your heart in confession to God before you go worship. You see the difference? And so that's a, that's an important concept. And for us, that means get ready for the Lord's day. It means spend time in prayer. It means spend time in the word. It means preparing your heart, not, not dragging yourself in here on a Sunday morning going, oh, I'm so glad I made it in up till five in the morning watching a bunch of movies and that was fun, and now I need to be made holy. No. Prepare yourself for worship. And that is a concept almost utterly lost in the church today. So I want to take that moment just to talk about that. But in in Israel's day, what did that mean for them? Well, God used the very physical, the very real things of life to illustrate this spiritual principle. If you had any kind of flow from your skin or your body, you were unclean. God is setting apart his people. And and frankly, just part of normal life, um, you have things like injury, sickness, bodily emissions. Just living made you unclean. And it also meant you needed to bring an offering for sin because only sinners are unclean. You're not deliberately trying to sin, and yet you're still unclean. And really, you couldn't live daily life without coming into contact with that which is unclean. You couldn't do it. And so if you're in a polluted state and you come into contact with that which is holy, now you're condemned. And so chapters 8 and 9, for example, the priests had to be washed, they had to be purified before they could be sanctified, made holy. What does this mean? If you lived your life as an Israelite knowing that Everything you touch, oh, I'm unclean again. Oh, I'm unclean again. Oh, I have a some pustule on my face. I'm unclean again. You live your life in constant frustration that you can never be clean. And so thankfully, by grace, God offers opportunities to be clean in a picture that we now know is fully realized in Christ. But the uncleanness reflected the fact that You're a sinful person in a sinful body and on a sinful earth that we tend toward uncleanness. We just do. Even just in daily life. And so you had to take pains to come to Yahweh in the right way. You had to take pains to do this. Interestingly, if you think about Psalm 119, how often the writer says he loves the law of God. And often in Psalm 119, he said that the law of God was the key to living a blessed life. That if I obey, if I'm clean before God regarding my obedience, I don't mean clean in the sense of earning my salvation with good works, but clean in the sense of just obeying out of love. There's blessing to that. There's a, there's a joy to that. So, when you read Leviticus, and you come across holiness, 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 don't let that slide by as well. That's just something the Old Testament people had to worry about. No. Peter quoted from Leviticus, "Be holy for I am holy." And so that those concepts under the theme of the cross still hold for us today. Then we have the theme of the sacrificial system. If you're going to be holy, sacrifice is necessary. And under the sacrificial system, you have the offerings, and then you have the priests the offerings in chapters 1 through 7 there's five of them that are highlighted there and you'll notice that the offerer is highly involved i, I don't know about you but when i was a kid thinking about old testament sacrifice and trying somehow to imagine something that happened 3500 years ago i always pictured that you that you uh, brought an animal to the priest and the priest did the dirty work that's not what happened There is personal involvement of the offerer. You're identified with the animal. You kill the animal. You butcher the animal. And you clean the entrails of the animal. You're deeply involved in your own spiritual cleanness. Your own sacrifice. Your Your hand went on the head of that animal before you put your arm around its neck and slit its throat. The priest didn't do that part in most cases. That was the offerer who did so. And as the offering was completely consumed, your life and your sin is then symbolically consumed by Yahweh, and it's a reflection of the commitment the offerer has to the Lord. The burnt offering, for example, says, when you bring. Now, the burnt offering doesn't have set times. It's just when you bring. It's just general instruction on what Yahweh required of his people. Let, let me just highlight very briefly three of the five offerings. Very briefly, the, the burnt offering was for the purpose of paying for your sin. It was a, obviously a temporary payment for sin. Christ would bring the permanent payment. Then you had the guilt offering. The guilt offering repairs the breach bef- between God and man. It's not enough just to pay for sin. There has to be a repair of the relationship, a repair of the guilt. We see this in Romans chapter 5, don't we? That God has reconciled us to Himself. That's repairing the breach, bridging the gap. And then you have the peace offering. The peace offering declares restored fellowship. The peace offering, by the way, is the only offering in which the offerer gets to partake of the meat. And you had two days to do it, They would often invite others to celebrate with him. The the celebration is, Yahweh is at peace, in fellowship with me. I'm in fellowship with him. It was a declaration between a person and Yahweh. Why is that? Because sin ruptures relationships. Sin ruptures the relationship between God and man and the peace offering celebrates that that relationship has been repaired. Now, just a little side note here. An argument can be made that the Lord's table, communion, has elements of the burnt offering, the guilt offering, and the peace offering. All of them. Because it reminds us that Christ paid for our sin. It is an act of relationship together with Christ. And it's a peace offering as well that we are in Christ. And so uh, there's, there's a, great, um, a great correlation there. These offerings are considered the basis of atonement. You must have shed blood. Why is that? Because sin is death. Sin sheds blood. What was the first major sin on this earth besides the fall of man? The first major sin is Cain murdering Abel. We are murderers at heart. And what must murderers do? They must be executed. And so blood is required. So it's not only the basis of atonement, it's the basis of forgiveness. And then to have a sacrificial system, you have to have mediators. You have to have those who perform the, 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 not the sacrifice themselves, uh, the sacrifice itself, but who mediate, who uh, make sure and uh, functionally see everything happen. And that is the priesthood, of course, chapters 8 through 10. Every priest in Israel was a son of Aaron, not the entire tribe of Levi. We studied this in Leviticus. There were were three major um, uh, clans in Levi, and they had different jobs. But the priests were were only the sons of Aaron. Chapters 8, 9, and 10, there's still only three priests. Two others are killed in Leviticus 10. And so there's not very many of them. So those are the, the major themes there. What is the purpose of the book? Yahweh gave instruction that enabled him to live among his chosen people and enabled his people to have fellowship with him. So as you read through Leviticus, this is God graciously creating a way where sinful man can abide with holy God and not die. That there can be this way for Yahweh to have fellowship among his chosen people. Isn't that amazing? that uh, God made certain that they knew that he is nothing like the false gods of Egypt, nothing like the false gods of Canaan whatsoever. The false gods of of Egypt and Canaan, you had to go uh, cut down a tree and carve something, set it up on a pedestal and say, there's my God. But God didn't do that. Obviously, he's not made of wood or stone. God made a way for his presence to be visibly manifest. In fact, among his people, But he's holy, they're unholy. Therefore, that which is unholy had to be made holy. And so that's the whole point of Leviticus. I read a story recently of a Jew coming to faith in Christ as he studied the book of Leviticus. Because he came to the conclusion that there's no possible way that repeated animal sacrifices could in fact Um, be a permanent atonement. And he also asked himself the question, how come Jews don't sacrifice anything anymore? There are no sacrifices. You ask an Orthodox Jew, why do you not sacrifice? They don't really have a good answer for you. And this led him to turn to the New Testament to begin studying. And once he read of the Lamb of God, it was over for him. He said, this is Leviticus fulfilled. I may now be holy as God is holy through Christ. And so it's a tremendous book for us. Now, I told you that the literary structure would be familiar to you. Here's the structure. First 16 chapters of the book, the way to a holy God. The way to a holy God. In other words, this is the means by which redeemed Israel would maintain and and keep their personal relationship with Yahweh. What What would be another word for the way to a holy God? How do you know God? Another word would be doctrine or theology. This is a study of God. God is holy. How do I know him? It is through doctrine, the study of God. And then you have the second half of the book, beginning in chapter 17, the holy walk of of Yahweh's people. How are they to conduct themselves? How redeemed Israel would reflect that which is holy? I found the way to a holy God through the first 16 chapters. Now I am to reflect holy God in my conduct. What would be another word for the walk with a holy God? It would be your duty. Who else in our Bible uses the two-part structure of doctrine and duty in his epistles? Anybody remember? Yell it out there, Paul. Absolutely. Paul's structure is completely unoriginal. He simply knew Leviticus. And it is doctrine followed by duty. Very, very easy structure to understand. Now, we have some interpretive issues and we won't spend a lot of time on these because we need to get to numbers. So I'll just spend a couple of minutes here. What does it mean to make atonement? The classic understanding of making atonement is to cover. That's kind of the root word, the root meaning, to cover. Um, A little deeper understanding, it means to purge or to wipe away. To wipe something away, to purge as opposed to wiping over, covering over, it's to wipe away. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, um, it means through sacrifice there's a purging, there's a wiping away, there's a cleansing. And we understand that and that makes sense to us. We go even deeper though to the idea of to ransom, to ransom. And I have it backwards on the slide. Uh, to ransom and to cleanse. Let's just do both of those uh, together. To ransom, now whatever is purged is based on a substitution, on and on a penalty given to one who didn't deserve it and the benefit given to one, uh, one who needs that substitution. Reconciliation is brought about on the basis of a paid ransom. This is why God does not just say, Oh, I'll just forgive you without payment. There must be payment, otherwise God is not just. There must be payment for sin. And of course, when you are ransomed, then you are what? You're cleansed. And so we we can put all of those ideas, yes, at a surface level, atonement is covering. At a slightly deeper level, yes, it is wiping away, purging. But the end result is the ransom, the payment for your sin, which cleanses you of the the. Uh, guilt of sin cleanses you of the consequences of sin what about nadab and abihu chapter 10 simply says that they offered strange or unauthorized fire so what was that some say it was the fact that they entered the most holy place maybe they did maybe they didn't some say it was improper incense some say it was the wrong time of the day some say it was coals that were not from the altar but it was you know they just made their own fire and said hey let's offer this the text doesn't say most likely it's a combination of the wrong incense and the wrong fire but the lesson is not what did they do the lesson is the heart attitude they believed they could offer worship in a way god did not prescribe And so that's the main sin. And so we don't get to prescribe how we offer worship. And if I may be so bold as to say, those outside the church certainly don't get to prescribe how we may offer worship. We alone obey God alone. What about the unclean animals? Those poor unclean animals. I mean, they're not wicked, are they? Are they just unhygienic animals? Some say, well, they're just not hygienic, but that doesn't hold water across the board. How about pagan sacrificial animals? Animals sacrificed to pagan gods, well, that would include all of them. And so we can't go that route. Others would say it's a reminder of the spiritual condition of humans. We're getting closer. And then others would say that the animals are an illustration of the distinction between Israel and the nations now we're pretty close small problem genesis chapter 6 gives a distinction of uh, unclean and clean animals long before the law was given so how do we understand this basically it is a reminder of the spiritual condition of humans and a reminder of the distinctness of israel and the rest of the world and so uh, why did god choose certain animals and not others we're not told and we leave it at that we let it be okay it's a reminder of the spiritual condition of humans. It's certainly a reminder of the concept of holiness. You may eat this, you cannot eat that. That's a, a clear reminder of holiness. All right, Leviticus. Now we're going to do numbers. Now we get to, interestingly enough, uh, a book that on its surface, when you read the title, you go, uh oh, I'm going to be bored. But the fact is, Numbers is almost all stories. It's almost all things happening. The Hebrew Bible calls it in the wilderness or and he spoke. In the wilderness or and he spoke. The Septuagint just calls it Numbers. It takes the census uh, that happens near the beginning and the census near the end. It says, let's make that the theme. And that's fine. Author again is Moses. Um, the date of the events now. Leviticus takes place in the month. Numbers takes place um, over a period of uh, forty years or so, and so it, it takes a longer time. The date of the events it goes from fourteen forty five BC, right uh, the year after the Exodus, all the way to fourteen oh six BC, right before um, the beginning of the conquest. And so now we have uh, beginning the numbers at the second year after the Exodus, and it goes all the way until the conquest. Now, just to be clear here, the first nine and a half chapters are not in strict chronological order. It tells us what God spoke in the first 50 days of the second year uh, after the, the Exodus. So whenever you, somebody says, well, those chapters aren't in chronological order, so the Bible isn't inspired... Who, who made the rule it has to be in chronological order read the book of Daniel book of Daniel is jumbled up chronologically because the purpose is not to give a single string of a story but the purpose is to give prophecies concerning different events so we don't worry about that if they're not in chronological order once you get to uh, chapter 10 then the chronology kicks in now uh, just a brief chronology of how this works chapters 1 through 14 all happened in the second year after the exodus Chapters 15 through 19, the third through the 39th year after the Exodus. So what's happening then? People are dropping dead during that time. Israel is disobedient. We don't know, by the way, if tabernacle worship continued during that time. Uh, There's no proof, no indication of any Passovers, any Days of Atonement, no evidence that they kept the law. But God was merciful to them in the meantime. Their clothes didn't wear out. Their bodies were immune in some way to the natural consequences of the wilderness. God continued to rain manna upon them six days a week. There is no human explanation for Israel's survival in this wilderness. Nobody should have survived at all. It's not just that the generation that God said would die should have died. They all should have died. Today, you can't possibly support that number of people in what's called the Northern Sinai Peninsula, or wilderness rather. You can't build a city there without massive irrigation. There's, there's still nothing there today. You just kind of drive through it. It couldn't have supported uh, sedentary life and could barely support just a few nomads that, that still to this day move through there. So God provided for them miraculously. Now, somebody might say, well, we haven't found three million bodies or skeletons in that wilderness. Remember this, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Did you catch that? The absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Um, God doesn't want us to find those, apparently, and so we don't worry about it. Then you get to chapters 20 through 26, and now time is compressed and we, or it's extended out, rather. That's all in the 40th year. Preparation for Deuteronomy, which is uh, preparation for uh, the conquest. Obviously then, main theme, historical and theological themes, the wilderness. And I have a list of chapters here in the book of Numbers that reference the wilderness. It's pretty much all of them, so I won't give you the list. The wilderness comes to an, experience, comes to an end in chapter 22, verse 1. And from chapter 22 on, whenever the wilderness is mentioned, it's now in retrospect. You can talk to a Jew today about the wilderness, and it's still such a massive cultural memory for them, Um, even if they're not Orthodox, even if they don't go to the synagogue, if they never partake in in Jewish activities. You talk about the wilderness, they know what the wilderness is. It is such a part of, of Jewish history. We know that Joshua and Caleb were now the oldest of all Israel. They're the only old men, by the way, as they go into Canaan. All the other men are are young guys. And so you have the wilderness, major, major theme. You have the rebellion of Israel. The rebellion of Israel. Rebellious events are classically kind of what Numbers is known for but it's only about a third of the book. They resisted legitimate authority. It's a great lesson for us not to, not to resist the spiritual authority that God places over us. You remember chapter 13, spies are sent out. Chapter 14, Caleb and Joshua pleaded with Israel not to rebel. Um, the spies in chapter 13, except for Joshua and Caleb, they saw what was on the outside, big people, but they, they looked like on the inside. They didn't see what they looked like on the inside a weakness that was in Canaan. Israel didn't have faith to believe. And here's the irony. There were, according to the best historical accounts, at that time in all of the land of Canaan, put together all those tribes, all those little nations together. You put all their fighting forces together and there were 100,000 fighting men in Canaan. You recall how many Israel brought? Just over 600,000. And yet those spies were scared. They did not see faith in God. Chapter 20, you have the rebellion against Israel. And I'm sorry, the rebellion of Israel and, and Moses is angry. And now he himself rebels and strikes the rock in disobedience. So what can we take away as a lesson from the rebellion of Israel? I want to take just a moment and talk about this because we never want to uh, just leave the Bible unapplied. What leads to Rebellion. What leads to somebody out and out saying, I'm not going to follow the leadership God has placed over me. I'm not going to do what God says. What leads to that? It's not a conscious decision to begin with. That's not where it begins. Rebellion is a culmination. And if you read the book of Numbers, what does it start with? It starts with complaining. It starts with grumbling. It starts with bemoaning. It begins in chapter 11 on the borders of the camp, complaining in the hearing of the Lord, and that eventually leads to rebellion. In other words, the attitude of the heart leads to rebellious actions outwardly. They complained about God's sustenance. They wished there were more. They asked for meat out of a heart of complaining, and God is angry with complaining. Why? Because complaining says, I don't have faith in you. That's what complaining says. I despise my circumstances even though you brought them. Then you have the theme of the wrath of God toward his disobedient people. And I won't say much about that because that's just simply the natural consequence of rebellion. And I gave you a list of chapters up there where the wrath of God is brought out. Then you have the blessing of God through Balaam. Now this is very interesting. Balaam, this man who is an enigma is the second greatest speaker of God's word in all of the Torah, all of the Pentateuch. The only other one greater is Moses. But Balaam says more. You remember his oracles? He's hired by the king of Moab to curse Israel. You would think this would be fairly easy because Israel just disobeys all the time. All Balaam would have to do is to tell the truth about Israel. But then in chapter 23, verse 8, how shall I curse whom God has not cursed? God won't let him curse Israel. And why is that? Well, he can't curse Israel because of, his, of God's promise to Abraham. Chapter 23, verse 9, Balaam says that they're like, the Israelites are like dust. What does that hearken back to? Back to the Abrahamic covenant. Your descendants will be like the dust. Balaam only speaks what God allows and makes him, and makes him to speak. So why is it that God did not allow Israel to die? And I'm going to talk about this later this morning in our worship time. He didn't allow Israel to die because of the Abrahamic covenant. We did the whole message on Balaam when we went through numbers, so I won't say much more about it. You can listen to it if you want more details. But without the Abrahamic covenant, Israel's history makes no sense whatsoever. If you think about it, they should have died in Egypt. They should have died in the wilderness. They should have died in Canaan. They should have died in exile. And yet they won't die. Why is that? Because God made a covenant with Abraham that I will bless your people forever. And that, The consummation of that blessing is still coming. God doesn't bless Israel because they're worthy of blessing, but because of his promise to Abraham, which, by the way, is one of the reasons we believe in assurance of and security of our salvation. It's a ludicrous thought to think that God saves you by his grace, but you can lose your salvation by means of your bad works. That makes no sense whatsoever. There's no pattern of that anywhere in Scripture. So... Because of God's covenant to Abraham, Israel is secure. And because of the new covenant with you, we're secure. And so the the principles are the same. So there's nothing that Balaam can say that changes what God has determined to do for Israel. We'll come back to Balaam in a minute. Then you have the theme of the numbers themselves. The numbers are evidence of the glory and the grace of Yahweh. How do the numbers give evidence of grace of God? When there's a totally new census near the end of the book, after all of the men and women of the first generation have died in the wilderness, they've all dropped dead, there is a net loss out of probably 3 million people, a net loss of 1,800 people. And when you're talking about 3 million, that's not even noticeable. How is that even possible? Well, it's only possible by the providence and the, and the grace of God. God basically replaces every man who dies in the wilderness with a man who will go into Canaan. And basically what we're talking about here are the fighting men. That He replaces them completely. God didn't need them. He just chose to use them in his grace. A, a massive, massive fighting force. If you read the book of Judges chapter 6, you'll see God uses a different tactic with Gideon. He, he whittles his force down to 300. That's a different reason, different purpose, different time. But you have two to three million people in the wilderness every day for 40 years and God sustains them. Even though they rebel, even though they complain, even though they sin, He continues to sustain them. And that is grace. I spoke with a dying man once and he was ashamed that his final thoughts on this earth were tending toward complaint and tending toward, toward uh bemoaning his circumstances, intending toward wishing he wasn't in the hospital and wish he didn't have needles stuck in them all over the place. And he told me, I, I don't want my life to end complaining. And what we talked about was the sweetness of the fact that he can complain his way all the way to the grave and God has still saved him. And who knows, we, we even joked that maybe, maybe God will kind of rib him a little bit. Look how glorious heaven is. What were you complaining about? But it was a tremendous moment for him to remember that all the complaining in the world will not undo the grace of God in his life. And then you have the patience of Yahweh, of course. God is very patient. When you think, God, why are you taking so long? He has all the time in the universe. He's not concerned with the length of your life. He's not even concerned that his will be fully accomplished in your lifetime, He's not concerned about that. Amazingly, the will of God is not centered around the 70 years you're on this earth. He had no problem. He waited 38 years. Okay, you can all die. I've been here forever. I can wait 38 years. He waited for a new generation to grow up and to be ready for war. The goal didn't change. It's just He just changed personnel. He just changed people. So we see the patience of Yahweh over and over again. What's the purpose of Numbers? The failure of Israel to obey Yahweh in faith brought Yahweh's discipline by death, but it did not frustrate Yahweh's ultimate purpose to bless Israel. That's important. Let me read that again. The failure of Israel to obey Yahweh in faith brought Yahweh's discipline by death, but it did not frustrate Yahweh's ultimate purpose to bless Israel. Why is that important today? Because there's an entire group of believers In covenant theology that believe that god is done with israel forever and ever and ever and that the church has now become israel well if god is who he is in numbers and god never changes then that can't be and so we never want to be in that camp of denigrating israel we're going to talk about that some later this morning as well yes i mean the discipline this is severe I mean, just imagine in our little sphere here, if God came and visited Grace Bible Church and said, you know, you guys have been so unfaithful, I'm going to use this church, but none of you are going to be part of it. Oh, that hurts. But we'll still go to heaven. We'll still be with the Lord. His discipline is severe, but his plan for his people is never thwarted, nor does he ever abandon it. Let's do the literary structure, and then we'll finish with interpretive issues. First part of the book, first 25 chapters, you have the experience of the first generation of Israel in the wilderness. This is what happened with them. You have the obedience of Israel toward Yahweh at Sinai. Those were glorious days. The organization of Israel around the tabernacle, the the orientation of Israel toward the tabernacle. And so you have Israel formed. You have their their culture set. You have the fact that they become a theocracy. And so at Sinai, there's there's some glory days in those first few chapters. But then, you have the disobedience of Israel toward Yahweh in the wilderness. And now, as they set out into the wilderness, very quickly, they begin complaining. They begin needing discipline of the Lord. Doesn't this sound like a baby being born? A baby's so cute and adorable and everything's going to be perfect. Yours is going to be the first perfect child. Yours will never be disciplined. Yours will never need correction. And all of a sudden, they get to a little age and you say, Don't do that. And they go, no. And you go, oh, here we go. And if you're wise, you will begin disciplining. They complained on the journey from Sinai to Kadesh. They rebelled at Kadesh. You had the rebellion of Israel, the consequences in chapters 13 through 19, all the rebellion, all the way to the plains of Moab. So the experience of the first generation of Israel You have the final rebellion of Israel, the the last insult um, with Baal of Peor on the plains of Moab. This is is where Balaam comes in and the, the sons of Israel are now going and being disgustingly immoral with the daughters of Midian, the daughters of Moab. And he has to discipline them there as well. We spend a whole message on that in Numbers. And then the last part of the book chapters 26 through 36 you have the experience of the second generation of israel on the plains of moab there's a renewed obedience of israel toward god a renewal of their their covenant obedience they prepare for the conquest they anticipate the conquest and so as you get to the end of numbers uh, which we just finished a, a couple of weeks ago now there's this anticipation that we're about to receive what our fathers were unable to receive they did not have the faith to but now we will Interpretive issues, there's basically one big one in the book of Numbers. What about Balaam, the second greatest speaker of God's word in all of the Pentateuch and all of the Torah? So was he a true prophet of God? Well, I'm, I would say no. He's false. Balaam's character is, is really just incidental to the narrative here um, he is used by God, but he is a false prophet. And I listed these reasons, I think, when we went through this message in, in Numbers 22 through 25. But here's a few reasons. Chapter 31, verse 8, he died with the Moabites. He died at the end of a sword of an Israelite soldier. That is under the judgment of God. Second reason is false is he didn't believe what he said. He just said it. It, it would be Picture this. Picture, um, how many of you know who Benny Hinn is? You're, okay, yeah, the groan in the room. Okay, picture Benny Hinn coming to a pulpit. I'm sorry to say, picture Benny Hinn, but picture Benny Hinn coming to a pulpit and saying, or he's about to say, <clears throat> "Trust in me and trust in God for health and wealth and prosperity." And and by the way, give your offerings and bring this person that I can pretend to heal up here. And he's about to do his same old nonsense to rip off innocent bystanders and he gets into the pulpit and he says Jesus Christ is the son of the living God you must come to him you must receive forgiveness of sins you must avoid the wrath of God and he's looking around going where are these words coming from this is not what I intended to say and he speaks truth does that mean Benny Hinn is suddenly saved no it just means God is using him in a way that he wants and the old joke is even the donkey can speak if God tells him to And so Balaam is more like his donkey than he is like a prophet of God. Balaam is also behind the judgments of Israel in Numbers 25. Balaam told the Moabite king to seduce Israel with false religion. He couldn't curse them, but he said, let me tell you how you can seduce them. You can curse them by having false religion and sexual immorality put together. Because what were the sons of Israel doing? They were going to the daughters of Midian, going to the daughters of Moab. And the deal was, if you come to have the pleasures of the women of our tribes, you will bow down to our gods. And so they were led into idolatry. Chapter 22. Balaam's donkey knew who God was. Balaam didn't. Chapter 22, Balaam addressed God as Yahweh. But the text always says when God is speaking to Balaam, God is listed as God, not Yahweh. In other words, it's like a person saying to me, a a young man saying to me, Dad, I think you should, and I'm saying, you are not my son. Don't call me that. Balaam says he knows God, but he doesn't. When Balaam speaks, he claims Yahweh is his God, but God never claims Balaam as his own, ever. We also see that God has to severely limit and threaten Balaam to only speak what God tells him. You wouldn't have to do this with with a true prophet of God. How would you like it? If you found out that uh, the, the moment before I come to the pulpit every Sunday, God has me in a headlock in my office saying, you better say the right thing. Don't say what you really want to say. You'd be a little disturbed by that. Like, don't you want to speak the truth? He didn't want to speak the truth. And then in chapter 24, the spirit of God comes on Balaam. It doesn't show him to be a true prophet. It shows that, that God has to make sure Balaam will only speak God's words. So this is a great warning for us, isn't it? That somebody who speaks words from God, somebody who might stand in the pulpit even and open a Bible and read it aloud, that doesn't mean that he is a person sent by God. And so Balaam is a great warning to us um, that true faith is always internal and God uses him. Now, why does God use him? We're not told, but he does. And as he often uses unbelievers for his own purposes. So there we go. 40% of the Pentateuch. And most of you are still awake. I'm very impressed with that. So uh, I hope you enjoyed reading Leviticus and Numbers. Um, In two weeks, we'll get to Deuteronomy. And next week, of course, we're getting now to theology proper. And we'll talk about the existence and the knowability of God. Big theological concepts next week. Let's pray for just a moment. Our Father, thank you for this time. I am thankful for the sharp minds that are here in this room, taking in this um, vast quantity of information. Lord, I pray that, we always pray this, but Lord, I pray that for the rest of their lives, whenever they read Leviticus and Numbers, it'll never be the same for them again. That they'll see the holiness of God and the holiness expected of His people in Leviticus. And they will see the, the consequences of sin in the book of Numbers, the expectation of spiritual maturity, and how you grow us up in you through discipline and through instruction. Lord, I pray that you would receive the worship that we continue to bring this day. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.